Hudson film where Craig hates you and won't speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Scott will leave that in, but I best to add that the other end, just in case he feels like not doing it. Sorry. <laughs> I hope he does, because that would be funny. Um, <laughs> um, in case Scott hasn't left that intro in, hello, uh, welcome to Hudson film. This is the intermission episode for... When are we? February? February 2075. February 2075, where we have somehow survived the impending apocalypse and speak to you from the future. Most of Miami is underwater. Films, let's talk about some films. Um, we have four of them for you tonight, and Scott's going to talk about the first one. Because you also are joined tonight by Scott. <laughs> it's, Scott's one of the people you'll be hearing. I'm to another one, and the, the third person you heard there, well, really the second person, because you've not heard Scott yet, <laughs> <laughs> she wanna do that bit again. No. <laughs> oh god. No, That's the level of professionalism and competence we've come to expect from this podcast. It's, it's Alright, Andrew. Of- we'll fix it in the edit. <laughs> Dear me. Yeah, it's the best you're getting tonight. Audacity's got a pish filter. Don't worry. Oh she's silence for thirty minutes then. Yes. <laughs> Yes, um, we're well named, really. Um, it's a collective. Yes, okay. Scott, please. Oh man, tell he, us. Is, he is going with it. <laughs> I am. I'm not doing it again. Fair dues. Scott, please tell us about Aquaman. Never back down, Drew. Never back down. <laughs> never retreat, Scott. Never surrender. Stand your ground. Stand By your ground. By Grabthar's hammer, I will not do this again. <laughs> Stand your ground, Drew. You're you're legally allowed to shoot me now in forty-seven <laughs> states. <laughs> Yes! <laughs> That's been a long time coming. We're in one of the other three. Psych! You were wondering when Jimmy Shaker Day was, Craig. <laughs> it's today, Jimmy Shaker Day. I still ask myself that every goddamn morning. You need to be prepared. The first time I accidentally bump into Gary sneeze in the street, I am going to <laughs> myself. <laughs> so the first film we're going to talk about is Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> is Gary Sinise an Aquaman, Scott? Sadly, no. <laughs> Seamless link. <laughs> I'll set them up, boy. You knock them in. <laughs> I think that one was skied over the bar. <laughs> right, Aquaman then. I, I believe I mentioned in passing during some podcast passive my thoughts on the trailer for Aquaman, and for once that trailer proved to be quite representative of the tone and general quality of the final product. So the very short form of this review is go watch the trailer and judge for yourselves. <laughs> But I'm not being paid the big bucks to shirk my duties. I'm not being paid at all, more fool me. Anyway, uh, the latest of the quote-unquote troubled DC Universe films to appear centres on Jason Momoa's Aquaman, or Arthur Curry, which splits its duties between action outing and origin story, although perhaps less origin story than assuming the mantle story. Sorry, did you say Arthur Curry? That's his name, I believe. Is that genuinely his name? If I... You know what? I didn't actually check it, and now you've you've planted a seed of doubt in my mind. So oh, strong, I need to. Uh, I've accepted the idea that you might have been wrong about Arthur Curry. No, no I'm sounds, correct. Yes. It sounds like a name from a cartoon, Coronation Street, or something. I was going to say, or like only fools Alpha! and horses, or something. Alpha Curry, what are you doing? No, it is Arthur Curry. Aqu- <laughs> Aquaman. <laughs> Aquaman bought a load of dodgy toys from a guy down the market called Arthur Curry. Yeah, Arthur. Wow. Sure, some attention is paid to what happens when a lighthouse keeper, uh, Tamura Morrison, and Nicole Kidman's exiled Atlantean queen, Atlanta, are very much in love and do a special cuddle, and how a young Arthur... (laughs) (laughs) And how a young Arthur is trained by Willem Dafoe's Atlantean majordomo Vulco on the quiet to harness his powers. But for the most part, we're joining Arthur after all that Justice League unpleasantness, with him still wanting nothing to do with the undersea world. 
However, the Undersea World has decided that it wants a piece of us, in particular Acroman's half-brother and ruler of one of the powerful <laughs> Undersea Kingdoms, Orm, played by Patrick Wilson. <laughs> He's underhandedly setting about uniting the clans against a perceived common enemy, us landlubbards, and Vulco and Amberherd's Mira, princess of something or other, come to the conclusion that the only way to stop this is to have a highly reluctant Arthur challenge his half-brother for leadership. As part of that, he'll need to be recognised as the rightful ruler after his long absence and half-breed status are counted against him, so he'll have to seek out authority by reclaiming legendary Atlan's MacGuffin, sorry, Trident, from the bosom of the water, which, if you ask me, is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Out to stop him. <laughs> Out to stop him are Orm's goon squads and Black Manta, played by Yaya Abdul Mateen II, a human mercenary slash pirate powered with Atlantean technology, holding a grudge against Arthur. Now, like most comic book movies, it is a silly premise. Unlike most of the best of them, it leans into this rather than trying to fight it. It's helped massively by Jason Momoa being such a likeable, charismatic son of a gun, and he's rapidly becoming the best hope for Hollywood action cinema's survival after The Rock's hip goes or something. Of course, it's basically one big parade of CGI, which here is on the sliding scale between works really well and really doesn't. Most of it's used to create fantastic undersea worlds, like of which could not be realised before renderware was a thing, and this is all gravy, the unusual unreality of CG swinging back to being an advantage rather than a hindrance. Sadly, the pendulum swings the other way for a few scenes taking place on shore, and in a film that's half an hour too long, there's one particular Italian village destroying scene that could have been pruned out without anyone missing it. It's not enough to sink the film, ho ho ho, do you see what I did there, uh, but in common with damn near everything that we speak of, there's a great tight 90 100 minute or so film here just scraped out past two hours. Also, Black Manta's character design looks daft in a bad way on land, as opposed to some of the underwater army shenanigans towards the film's end, which I find to be daft in entirely the correct way. <laughs> it's got armoured megalodons. Yes, they're pretty cool. My god. <laughs> Salmon. Megalodon. Salmon's megalodon. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, while there's nothing overall outstandingly great or dreadful in Aquaman, there's some fun dialogue, decent performances, Momo's presence and the unique visual stylings make this a pretty enjoyable slice of entertainment, and I like this as much as any of the other of the least dreadful Marvel or DC Universe films. (laughs) Worth catching up with should this sort of thing be your bag, and I congratulate it for having the incredible twist of not having Willem Dafoe be a bad guy. I did not see that one coming. (laughs) <laughs> and also it seems to have it seems to have stoked the ire of James Cameron as well, which could only be a good thing. <laughs> it's it's not realistic. No. No. They don't no, move I right don't, underwater. I don't you, think you, that I don't think it was the goal here, yeah. James. You might have missed that. <laughs> a lot of this seems to have gone over your head, James. I mean, I mean to be but fair, he knows, he knows thousands of hours underwater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know we know James. We know. But he knows what he's talking about uh, in realism of movement and other things in fantasy worlds. I mean, he did, of course, create that wonderful fantasy world where every creature has a built-in USB port. Mm-hmm. We are we to question James Cameron. Yeah. Yeah. What if their ponytail shagged? Aye, okay, James. <laughs> As a side note, I'm, I'm glad that Aquaman's the first DC film across the billion-dollar mark, purely on the basis yeah. that we can, we can now retire the DC films are doomed argument, which never made a lot of sense. I mean, mm. Marvel films make more money, sure, but... 
Even when a film as irredeemably awful as Suicide Squad can take in $750 million, I don't think we need to worry about custom demand here. <laughs> and now, yeah. they seem to have worked out how to make a film without reshooting half of it and paying for cutting-edge moustache removal, so I suspect <laughs> there's a Scrooge McDuckian future awaiting them for better or worse for the cinema landscape. Well, in fairness, they just couldn't, re- they just couldn't render realistically how a moustache would behave underwater, Scott. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so they left it out entirely. <laughs> Oh dear, James Cameron wasn't available for uh, consultation that day. <laughs> Bell end. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it, but it does look like a good deal of fun. The kind of stupid, trashy fun that DC movies probably ought to have shifted gear into some time ago. But like you say, yeah. um, I don't think for all the sort of doom and gloom uh, that uh, that people seem to um, have opinions of in relation to these things, it's mm. yes, the, the, the box office for... Pretty much all of those movies so far seems to suggest otherwise. So, yeah. yes, <laughs> Suicide Squad of all yeah. things, yeah. seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Yes, how <laughs> did that movie cost less than three hundred million dollars to make? <laughs> yes, well, there you go then. I like Jason Momoa, but it's the only thing that kind of appealed to me about the film. I saw the trailer a few times, like eh, a bunch of CGI stuff. It doesn't look very nice. I don't really want to watch it, but then it's like. But Jason was fun, so maybe I'll give it a go. So you've kind of persuaded me to give it a go, yeah, Scott, I guess. To be honest, if you, if you didn't like the style of the trailer, you probably won't get a, a great amount of joy from it, but Momo's likable enough that I don't think yeah. it'll be a complete uh, misery to watch, so it's, it's mm. worth a go. If I told my wife Jason yeah. Momoa was in this, there'd be no way I could avoid watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Much as there was no way to avoid A Star Is Born, which we'll talk about soon, but... <laughs> Jason Momoa, I think, probably for a lot of people, the first time they saw him is... Cal Drogo. Just, yeah, Cal Drogo and Game of Thrones, like, and largely being mute or speaking a language they didn't understand. Mm. Uh, the first time I can particularly remember coming across my radar was the terrible Conan a Barbarian remake mm. um, that I remember not a great deal more of than was painfully, literally painfully loud in the cinema. But um haven't seen him in a few things since. I, yeah, I really like him. He's got a lot of charisma. He's got mm. that kind of smirk it does and he just it looks like he's having a lot of fun with these characters most of the time but in a way that doesn't feel like it's kind of taking him out of the character and so yeah for Jason Momoa alone I probably will give it a go well his best work to date has been that Instagram video I think it was he posted didn't it where uh, I can't remember if it was well they were filming this but where he demonstrates the fact that so long as his character is called upon to throw a hatchet at any point in the movie, <laughs> they don't need to waste money on CGI because uh, Jason Momoa is t- terrifyingly good at throwing hatchets. As it that is. was more back. Um, was that Justice League or something? Justice League time, I think. It was either. Yeah. It was again around about the time of Braven as well. So I don't mm. know whether actually yeah. it was that because mm. he was actually using hatchets in Braven. So that would been yeah make a bit more sense. But that would make sense. Man, what a guy! He was actually probably the best thing about Justice League as well. Hmm. Um, apart from obviously the incredible CGI on Henry Cavill's top lip because <laughs> I couldn't keep my eyes off of that Right, I seamlessly linked myself to the next movie, shall I talk about that? Knock yourself out Shall I, shall I talk about A Star Is Born? If you must <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, uh, right Well we're living in a time of seemingly peak remake but it's worth remembering that Hollywood has always been remaking stuff It just seems that our generation has a particular bee in our collective bonnet about the perceived sanctity of Robocop, Ghostbusters and Total Recall um, <laughs> I've stopped caring about remakes anymore which is probably just as well as my blood pressure would 
probably have been beyond tolerance in the event of watching A Star Is Born. I shall lay my stall out straight away and say that if you're going to remake a movie that has already seen three iconic incarnations, you had better A, have something new and valid to say about the subject, and B, have a pretty good excuse for placing a single foot wrong. So then, C, none of the above. Um, (laughs) For what it's worth, A Star Is Born isn't a terrible movie, far from it in fact. It's perfectly serviceable in any number of ways and perhaps even above average in a great many. Bradley Cooper makes his directorial debut here, also starring alongside Lady Gaga as a fading country rock musician who takes a young protégé beneath his wing after drunkenly discovering her performing burlesque at a gay bar. As they become romantically involved, the pair begin to pass each other on inversely proportionate career trajectories, and you can probably guess just about every other beat in between. Uh, They say there is nothing new under the sun, which is of course demonstrably false, unless that is you base your case on A Star Is Born. (laughs) Uh, Having having said that, Cooper does turn in his best performance to date, even from beneath the regrettable choice of a Sam Elliott aping gruff drawl. Uh, Elliott plays Cooper's older brother in the film, and why he allowed this flagrant insult to pass (laughs) Alpha. never know (laughs) because even in his advanced years you get the impression (laughs) that Sam Elliott could probably still take Bradley Cooper in a fight (laughs) just using his eyes (laughs) Uh, Cooper also proves himself perfectly capable behind the camera in fairness though I'll say it again this roadmap has been revised three times and with all due respect you'd have to work pretty hard to completely F it up (laughs) mostly assured it is an eight minute standing ovation at Cannes uh, it ought not to have been that's ridiculous that's nuts if there is one thing that does genuinely stand out it's Lady Gaga's performance I say Lady Gaga, as that's how she's chosen to be billed here, but I really wish she hadn't. To the best of my knowledge, that's the stage name for the musical endeavours of the fantastic performer, musician and songwriter Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germanotta, uh, and it's most definitely she who shows up here. Gaga, if she must insist, is excellent. She's raw, she's unpolished and refreshingly honest, and among all of the spurious awards nominations the movie has garnered, it would be she who deserves genuine recognition for her, uh, for her efforts here. I don't actually dislike A Star Is Born, but I find myself swimming pretty hard against the current of popular opinion. It is a four-star movie, and no mistake, but Sean, self-righteous garden gnome-looking prick pen, does really (laughs) need to sit the f*** back down and take his meds. I feel like this is a lazy choice for someone looking to make their name as a director, and we all know how much the entertainment industry likes to celebrate and revel in its own distorted self-indulgent mythology. Go in knowing that, and this is perfectly fine. Um, I understand entirely why someone would be attracted to this as a first movie, because it is a fairly easy point of entry, and it's fairly universal themes. I also suspect that Bradley Cooper might have felt as though enough time has passed uh, since the last incarnation of the this film which was 30 odd years ago or something like, like that Barbara Streisand version yeah and Chris Christopherson I think yeah. um, I mean enough has happened then in the world of fame and celebrity hasn't it with the, the rise and fall of um, real- well I say rise and fall I wish it was a fall the rise of celebrity TV and um, you know stuff like Pop Idol etc etc Uh, all of those types of shows but I still don't think this is offering anything new particularly I don't begrudge anybody liking this but I do think I do think the awards talk is slightly yeah. is slightly Slight exuberant. Slightly. Yes, I, mean, I didn't dislike this either, but I've not seen uh, either uh, the original, the original, or the last remake. And about fifteen minutes in, I thought two things: like one, I could write down the entire script of the rest of this yep. quite easily, and uh, did not surprise me in the slightest. And also that uh, I really didn't like Bradley Cooper's character in the slightest. Mm. He he was weird and creepy and oh can, can I can I can I touch your eyebrows like no 
Yeah, the no, first, you've just met this woman, you weirdo. The first Stop half it. of this movie is genuinely creepy. I turned to my wife yeah. and I said, "Is this just me, or is he actually coming across as a real pervert?" Yeah, I, I could not warrant with this guy at all. And yeah, in terms of a directorial debut, it's, it's perfectly competent. Everything's mm. been done done yeah. very polishedly. But in terms yeah. of actually becoming excited for this guy's career, it's like, well, it's not sorry to bother you. I'm, mm. I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to see. I'm not nothing like he's interested in what Bradley Cooper does next, as opposed to what Boots Riley will do next. Or yep. something like that. It's, uh, it's yeah. very safe. Um, Competent is absolutely the word that kept coming to my mind through the yeah. whole film. Yeah. Competent, but nothing beyond. Yeah, it was fine. I enjoyed it well enough, but I mean, any award at all, yeah, but Gaga possibly accepted, mm. is just nuts. Don't get it at all. There is there is one key emotional moment in the film that I thought was was handled incredibly well, but it's it's not the one that I think the film would like to focus its attentions on. Which I, I'm not I'm I'm not going to spoil it for you. I think probably everybody's seen this by this point anyway. Um, but it's it's not the ending of the film. But there's a point at which um, Bradley Cooper tells uh, his brother Sam Elliott's character that it wasn't his dad he idolised. It was yeah. it, it was mm-hmm. it was him. Yeah, and. Uh, Obviously, there are you know it's it's a it's a wonderful scene. These two guys who just have no idea whatsoever how to handle their emotions, and that yeah. scene of Sam Elliott reversing out of the driveway, he just he just tears off in the car. He d- he mm. just does not know how to handle the thing, yeah. <laughs> and his his eyes are red and he's welling up, but he just can't bring himself to allow any sort of emotion into it. He doesn't. He just cannot parse it. That's a that that was a really really effective scene. And I thought of all the scenes in the movie, I thought this is the one. The rest of the film had been composed of scenes like that. I would understand. I would understand the reverence that people are, are laying us. I, yeah. I, Sean, Sean Penn has made a number of bad calls in his life. What that open letter is about, I do not know. Yeah. So I have no idea what you're talking about. Sean Penn has essentially issued an open letter to the Academy stating that if anyone votes for anyone other than Bradley Cooper as best director, it's a joke because a star is born as pure art. Has he seen Roma? <laughs> Apparently not, Drew, because I know which of those I'd be putting my money on. Um, yes, I know. I know which one of those was an, an affecting movie for the times. I mean, Sean Penn's a noted idiot, but still. Oh, he's um, outdone himself here. Yeah. Workmanlike would be unfair, but it's yeah, it's serviceable and competent, and yeah. nothing beyond that. I mean, and that scene you're talking about, uh, yeah, that's very effective, and the choice to linger, the choice of direction and editing there to just mm. keep that going slightly longer than it was comfortable yeah. because the character is so uncomfortable. That's really, really good. good but, yeah. Yeah. but it stands out from the rest of the film because there aren't any other scenes like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. More, maybe more than a handful. I think there are a few um, scenes that would like to think they're that affecting, but they're not. Yeah, it's um, yeah. this film is alright for me. It's a three-star film. I've not seen any of the versions of this before, but like Scott and yourself, Craig, within minutes, like, oh, I'll know exactly how this is going to go. It's very easy to follow trajectory. Hmm. Um, I mean, the performances are, are solid throughout. It, it's well made, it sounds good, it looks good. It's just not remarkable in any way at all. Mm-hmm. With the possible exception of, as you say, Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. I do see a future for her in acting, and mm-hmm. I hope to. Um, mm-hmm. And with reference to which name she used, as you brought up to, that's making me think of when, for instance, different level of acting, I guess, but when The Rock started... He was calling himself The Rock. He's not yeah. allowed to call himself Dwayne Johnson now because it just sounds stupid to call yourself The Rock. I think it'll be something she comes to regret. Yeah, uh, I suspect in the, in the future it'll just be Stephanie Germanotta. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, she's great. My interest waned a little actually when her music career takes off. Yes. Because I, that, it's just that music was like, <laughs> meh. I mean, Lady Gaga's music, and that's close to like Lady Gaga's music, yeah. is, it's fine. I, 
she had some really kind of catchy tunes and I quite entertained listening to them, but... She's a great songwriter. Yeah, but I've not got a lot of tolerance for pop because it's fine for a little bit and then it's because it's got no substance at all. I really very quickly want something more. The song she does at the start, <laughs> the sort of country stroke rock yep. stuff she's doing with Bradley Cooper, is fantastic. And it's I've seen some videos of her when she was like a student, mm-hmm. would sit at a piano, just playing, no persona, no makeup, no just like no veneer, yeah, and no pop songs, just just songs, and they're beautiful, and she's amazing. Mm-hmm. And you see that at the start of the film, and that kind of disappears, and so musically, I just lost interest by the end. I think 100%. that was part. That was seemed to be. Uh, well, I've heard people saying that's part of the point. Oh, now she's become successful, she's losing her, in, her independence and creativity and all that sort of stuff. But it doesn't actually reflect any of that in what the character says at all. I mean, no, you can but she's that happy, she's happy musically. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. precisely. Um, so it, it seems like people are projecting that onto it, but it doesn't seem to be something that's actually in and of the character itself. So I'm not no, quite sure it, where that reading comes from. It's a bit strange. It doesn't work at all, Scott, for two reasons. One, yes, the character doesn't support it. The character seems happy that she's moved yeah. into yeah. a different genre. Of music. This is what I want to pursue. Yeah, and also it doesn't work because it's being played by Lady Gaga, and it's very Lady Gaga style music. Yes. So it doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> if it was a different actor, perhaps, but it's not. It's but her. The other, the other kicker is that it's just nowhere near the quality of Lady Gaga music, and I'm and I'm not sure whether or not she had any hand in writing those songs. But no, it's sort of like a, a pastiche almost of Lady Gaga hmm. music, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, in literally the like ab- abstracted out to the blandest it could possibly be. And I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you brought it up actually because we made the same observation in this household. And there's one of those. There's one of those songs has become a bit of a meme for us in this house. It's become a bit of a run, <laughs> it's become a bit of a running joke. And I had the same. I had the same sort of conflict where I wondered and I'd read people saying, "Well, yeah, it's about the fact that she's kind of at that point she's sold out, but." the character in the film her portrayal and her understanding of that situation is that she is as happy with that music as an expression of her character as she is the stuff she sings at the start of the the film there's no suggestion that she is partaking or, or knowingly selling out or that she uh, she perceives this as being any sort of decrease in the quality of her output it mm. was just it was just quite bizarre and it rung um it rung quite hollow there was also something about the compression of that for a film that arguably runs 20 minutes too long and i've, I've lost track of how many times I've said that in the last six months uh, for a film that arguably runs 20 minutes too long there is a weird lack of sense of that career playing out it all yeah, it happens in a month and a half yeah but even though yeah. it's actually over the course of about an hour of the film there's no sense of the passage of time it's no. really weird really weird yeah it's um it's strange and just I'm still banging on about this I guess but when like for instance uh, this this is perhaps one bit that felt a bit unlike other similar films that have gone in, this could have gone, where she's got the the English manager that comes in. Yeah. Um, and if it's English for a choice to make people think of people yeah. like Simon Carroll or something like that, but and you think he's going to be really controlling, really dictating to her, and he's sort of not, not in the way that would be a kind of... Certainly not in the way that Bradley Cooper's character comes across in the start of no, the film. No, <laughs> um, not in sort of the classic way that character might be of being like the yeah. evil villain, because yeah. for instance that bit when he's saying, you tell me you don't tell me what I'm telling you, you need these dancers. And he actually, there's a line just a little after, like, I fired the dancers. Yeah. So she clearly has some control and she's like, well, no, I, this is my career, and but I've decided that I want to present it this way. It's not just I'm being forced into this by yeah. the management of the label or anything. So That's fully what I expected, that he was going to turn out to be someone who coerced her and manipulated her for his own benefit sort of thing. But it's not really what transpires. Not in that way, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, when he has that chat with Bradley Cooper, but that's, yeah. I think that was heading that way anyway. 
Yes, that, that felt like more of an intervention on his part. That felt like more of a conversation around, look, this is realistically what's happening. Um, I, I didn't find that egregious in a, in a sort of character. I didn't find that necessarily. I found that something that someone might have said out of genuine interest and groundedness as opposed to trying to be manipulative, manipulative about anything. I'm not sure about that, but certainly it didn't come across as pure villainy as it no. could easily have done. No, he wasn't twirling his moustache as he said it. Or yes. Yeah, so... It's solid. I mean, it's all right. I don't regret watching it, but it's it's resolutely not special. Yeah, I'm never going to yeah. watch it again. No, no. Also, just because for the first half of the film, you can barely hear a word Bradley Cooper says anyway. I'm going to get some French fried tires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. But there you go. That's that is that's entertainment. <laughs> that's a star is born. So let's move on to something else entirely. I have forgotten. Yes, another uh, film. Another film dumped <laughs> onto Netflix. Well, it was a Netflix original actually, but still, I just think this was another that was supposed to have been in theaters. Didn't end up in theaters. Is there a reason, Scott? Yes, we're speaking of Velvet Buzzsaw, and the trailer for which looked mildly interesting as it seeked from an art criticism to bloody horror, but the real draw was Jake Gyllenhaal starring in another film written and directed by Dan Gilmore, a la Nightcrawler. Could they rebottle that lightning? Spoilers! No. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, I'd normally devote a few paragraphs to the film's plot, but to be honest, it'd be a waste of everyone's time. Uh, Evil not- magic paintings. There you yes, go. No, plot synopsis. No. Drew, may disco- Drew may disagree, but not for once because I think it's all that badly done in and of itself. It's just that it sets up so many strands that are ultimately unresolved, unless you count killing the protagonists for unrelated reasons, a resolution that I don't think is much worth a lot of time, but... In a nutshell, uh, Gyllenhaal inhabits Mort Vanderwalt, a highly influential art critic whose word can make or break careers. He goes about his routine, interacting with other artists, agents and gallery owners like Rene Rousseau's Rodora Hayes. Finding his love life with his boyfriend unfulfilling, he starts one with his friend and employee of Hayes's, Zoe Ashton's Josephina. And for a while it trucks along, examining the generally unsavoury or ridiculous lives and relationships of these people, before taking a hard left when an elderly gent in Josephina's apartment building dies, leaving behind a body of dark, disturbing art that, spoilers, is haunted, and somehow causes other art to be haunted, which then kills people with no regard to any internal logic, rhyme or reason. Now... It's not entirely clear for a while that random murder is the path that this film's committing to, as for a while it seems to be aiming for some more investigative look at the artist's life as Morphe searches a book before abandoning that, or at the psychological toll this takes on the survivors as people start showing up dead in grisly tableaus before abandoning that, or how it affects the already strange relationships of the leads before abandoning that. All strands abandoned in favour of an admittedly often fun murderous special effect, but this does leave this film feeling like a directionless waste of time and effort. <laughs> I'd heard some take recently disliking this as it was pushing a message of criticism being inherently worthless and the like and feeling it was a thin-skinned reaction piece from Gilmore's part, but I think this is giving the film far too much credit because I don't <laughs> think there's... Uh, sorry, I don't think it's anything like cohesive or thought out enough to be accused of holding any sort of message at all. Uh, really, this is very much less than some of its parts, and the thing of it is, a lot of those parts by themselves I kind of liked. I mean, the acting is reasonable, uh, with support from the likes of Tony Collette and John Malkovich, and they're all quite interesting. The characters are all interesting in various ways, and they're not like as one note as the trailer might, have us la- uh, might lead you to believe. And the general, the production value is quite high. 
for everything apart from the script, which feels like four decent enough story ideas passed through a wood chipper and reassembled at random, and is ultimately just a waste of everyone's time that doesn't deserve a great deal of analysis. So, uh, let's not do that. <laughs> Frustratingly, it's not to say I hated watching Velvet Buzzsaw. The performances and the characters are good enough for me to have it pass muster as a casual watch, but I absolutely hate thinking about Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, it's, it's very much a film that gets less enjoyable with every second spent thinking about it so yes let's not yeah this might shock you scott but i didn't hate it mm. I'm, uh, I'm surprised but gillard um, hall has a, is an interesting character and he's, he does it quite well it's just that this, the the film he's found himself in is bad yes. <laughs> i don't um, i i like jake gyllenhaal a lot and nightcrawler i think is one of the best films of the last decade but it's i don't know i, I just didn't enjoy his character in that it, it felt well out of character for him I, mm. I didn't feel he inhabited that role well though it was potentially interesting and i say i didn't hate it because i watched it and i sighed a lot and i was <laughs> teetering on being bored but i didn't hate it and it i think it saved itself from its production value it yeah. looked really nice it's a very yeah. um visually appealing film and certainly it verges towards being a i don't know that that idea about criticism being worthless that's nonsense but in terms of being a critique of the vapidity of people in the art world, absolutely. It's quite scathing in some points in that. It's like, oh, somebody's died. Let me think it's part of the exhibit. Or yeah. uh, somebody's died. But yes, business goes on and things. And it's uh, about how shallow these people are. Though you could apply that to so many worlds, particularly any world where a lot of money's involved. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know, when you said about it being like one of the strands that it lets go of is how people are reacting to these horrible things happening. And I actually think it never got to that. Especially given it's that the girl from Stranger Things that keeps finding the body. And that seemed to be more like a comedy trope than or a comedy yeah. angle than anything else because she, every time she changes job, somebody dies. Um, <laughs> and it's like a running joke. Uh, yeah. So it didn't feel like it was like anything about how people react to that. It was the same person just kept finding grisly deaths. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't think it really had anything to say. No, yeah. it felt like a waste of everyone's time. It yeah. feels like... Particularly John Malkovich. Yeah, th- there's so much talent there, and there's ideas there, there's characters there, but none of it meshes to get to move anything forward, and it's yeah. just, like, I don't know, is this a satire or is it a horror film? If it's a horror film, how come there's no logic to anything that's happening? And, I mean, we've got a low opinion of horror films in general, but, I mean, the, the good ones at least have the, the, the good sense to set up some sort of rules where something could happen, but just in this, anything, anything can happen. Anything can happen, it doesn't, yeah. So there's no real tension or investment that you could possibly have, so it falls back in being a satire or a comedy. It's just not either funny enough or satirical enough to to stand on that leg either. So it, it just doesn't really fit any criteria, and it just sort of exactly yeah, it has wanders no, around and gets lost in and gets forget forgotten about. It has no internal logic because if it was just like you know somehow yes, the art pieces and at least if they were the art pieces of the one artist, yeah. then yes, okay. But as you say, it seems to infect other stuff. But also, it switches on abandoned petrol stations in the middle of the night. Yes, because okay. petrol stations are art. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's... What a waste, in particular, of John Malkovich, though, because even something like... John um, Birdbox Malkovich. <laughs> yes, even something like Birdbox. He's one of the very few positive things about Birdbox. Yeah. Um, and he still doesn't get enough to do in that film, but he's great. In this, he's largely doodling on sand. He doesn't have an awful lot to do. <laughs> which is a real pity the other thing is and this was bothering me through the whole film too why the name they call the film Velvet Buzzsaw mm. so you think well that's going to be significant and then 
you got one of the major characters who's yeah. in a band called Velvet Buzz. So I think, well, that's significant. And then no. you see, um, <laughs> like, another reference to it. Sounded like, cool. There's art of her band on the wall. Well, that's significant in the end. No. I mean, there, there's one other reference to Velvet Buzz, but it has nothing to do with the, the whole grand scheme of the film. No. It's just one in a list of a type of thing that happens. Well, what, why is it called Velvet Buzz? And why did you seem to be focusing on that so heavily at the start of the film as if that was significant it means nothing it has nothing to do with the film sounds, sounds like the kind of title that was picked just to suggest more depth than there actually is yeah, because yeah. it sounds good yeah so oh, contrast yes, like a sharp thing that's all soft and smooth ha 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 we are light, clever light and dark <laughs> yeah it's it, the name makes no sense but because of the name because hot because, ice cream <laughs> and because so early in the film they make another reference to it with one of the major characters I'm like, well, it's significant then. So I'm thinking, trying to look for hints to it throughout the film, and it, it was nothing in the end. So actually, it's it's a bad title <laughs> because it makes you think that it's and not in like a, a useful way of misdirecting you. And it's just like, ah, no, yes, stupid. It's not it's not awful, but it's not good in any way other than perhaps visually. Yes, it's on my Twitter's at uh, Blake Wright's Perpetual Dub Machine. Roughly, I'm the host podcast weighing in uh, Velvet. Buzzsaw felt like art show confidential rewritten from a silly creep show Tales from the Crypt horror irony. Don't know if the two halves are blended well enough. No, no, they're no. not. <laughs> yeah, For uh, the four quarters, really, than the two <laughs> halves, I think. <laughs> he said the personalities on display are scathingly accurate to life and pettiness makes them good monster fodder. Yes, I suppose that is that was really the, the, the most joy I got out of this was seeing some quite inventive deaths, which I suppose is all you can ask for in a film that doesn't really come up with anything else to, to say. It's quite a shallow film. It seemed to think it was deeper. I think. Yeah, yeah, it, it's not. It was. It was clearly in search. It, it was grasping for some sort of meaning and not actually getting its hands around anything. And uh, yeah, it just felt like a bit of a waste in that. It's a bit of a shame. A bit of a shame, but. That's probably enough time spent on that one. Let's move on to something which, well, personally, I think it's a lot better. Uh, can you ever forgive me? And Drew? No. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <I didn't think laughs> uh, um, yes. Uh, an abrasive, misanthropic criminal who is far more interested in cats than other humans is perhaps not the most obviously compelling central character of a drama, or a comedy drama even. Nor would Melissa McCarthy be the first name most would think of to play such a role. Yet here McCarthy is. Based on the memoir of the same name, Can You Ever Forgive Me is the tale of New York writer Lee Israel McCarthy, a once popular writer of biographies whose latest novel is consigned to the discount piles and to his struggling to both write and to make ends meet, but to doing just fine at the whole alienating the entire human race thing. A chance discovery in an archive of an unknown letter written by the subject of her current book leads to Lee pocketing the document and selling it at a local bookshop. While this act may have been driven by desperation and worry over her ill cat, the one other sentient being she seems to have any compassion for or interest in, we have already been shown that she's not above the pettiest of theft. Really, petty. Toilet rolls. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Strange woman. Uh, And she's soon running a cottage industry in forged artefacts from literary figures like Dorothy Park and Noel Coward, using antique typewriters, headed notepaper and hot ovens to add a touch of authenticity. As doubts begin to mount about the veracity of her wares and words get around about her, Lee steps up to planned thefts to obtain genuine documents, while also enlisting the help of her recent acquaintance, and almost certainly only friend, Jack Cock. Jack Cock, Big Cock, as he charmingly introduces himself, to help her peddle her creations. Jack, played by Richard E. Grant, is a charismatic drunk who, 
If not living on the streets, is certainly couch surfing at best, and who seems to support himself with small-time drug dealing, and who angers Lee by not fully appreciating the skill she is displaying in making fake letters from dead celebrities to scam people out of money. <laughs> Truly, artists are not appreciated in their own lifetimes. <laughs> However, while there are no victimless crimes, we're not talking about violence here, or the sort of fraud that can bring down companies and truly affect lives, nor is it fakery on the level of, say, the Hitler Diaries. And so, with such low stakes, it's much easier to feel sympathy for Lee, even if she herself resists and probably would resent it, and to appreciate the tension and worry as the FBI begin to investigate. Melissa McCarthy is great here, her performance a world away from the comedy roles, both good, spy, and unbearable, the boss, with which she made her name, but her comic acting skills underpin the irascible and sharply cutting author whose persona bears more than a little resemblance to Dorothy Parker, whose literary voice she of course tried to mimic. She also gives a large helping of the pathos and loneliness which she has displayed a handful of times before, present even in her breakthrough role in the comedy Bridesmaids. Nicole Holofsener? Holofsener? I struggled with that as well, yeah. I had kind of a handle on that. Um, Nicole Hall of Cena and Jeff Whitty's script no doubt helps, but it takes a substantial heap of talent to make such an infuriating character endearing, tragic and sympathetic, while she works so hard to prevent you from feeling those things. McCarthy's co-star, Richard E. Grant, has received much acclaim for this film, and many comparisons have been made to his legendary turn in with Neil and I and in particular his ability to play drunk, a nifty feat for a teetotaler who's allergic to alcohol. (laughs) These comparisons are hyperbolic, of course. Indeed, how could they be otherwise? With Neil owned the screen, here Jack is, necessarily, second fiddle to McCarthy's Israel, but it is still a great performance and probably the best turn I've seen from him in years. The scenes between these two lonely, damaged misfits are hugely enjoyable, touching and often funny, and there's an easiness and warmth between them that holds your attention, even when the film is crying out for a little more substance. It's this lack of substance that keeps Can You Ever Forgive Me From Being Great, but Marielle Heller's film is still a very rewarding watch. It's not that there's no substance, it's just that more would be preferable. There's unspoken acknowledgement between Lee and Jack that their lives are unfulfilled and that their loneliness and situation has been brought about by their own choices and also though not always willingly, by their sexualities. And the deeper character study of each of these personalities would have been welcome. A final word of praise for the film's 1991 New York City setting, an aesthetic so well realised and authentic that it almost seems effortless, and therefore no doubt was quite the opposite. (laughs) Can You Ever Forgive Me is a low-key heist movie about people who don't know how to be with or around people and the paper-thin facade we create to protect ourselves, and is funny, tragic and absolutely to be seen. Yeah, I would largely echo what you've said, Drew. I think um, perhaps I'd maybe enjoyed it maybe a little bit more than yourself. I really appreciated the fact that the the film is so uh, low-key. I think the way that Heller handles it, there would be a tendency among some directors to amp up certain aspects of a story like this or to conflate certain characteristics of the main players and um, feel the need to hold the audience's hand through some of the more elusive plot points, but... Marielle Heller, this is only her second feature film, I think, with some a couple of episodes of TV stuff. Uh, I think Orange is the New Black or something like that in between. Um, yeah, she's certainly not... Um, it doesn't seem from this that she's got... that she's in, as inexperienced as she is. Yeah, she's, um, there's a certain confidence about the way that she lets her players sort of just, uh, just handle the material. She obviously appreciates the chemistry between the two leads. There's nothing flashy going on behind 
the camera and likewise you mentioned the script drew as well and i think it's a pretty it's a pretty rare beast that places faith in both its cast and its audience and it dispenses almost entirely with exposition in favor of a, a little thing that we used to know as storytelling um, and also isn't afraid to have some scenes of just people sitting chatting which yeah. i love but is quite rare <laughs> Yeah, and what a, what a job McCarthy does as well. Um, I think Lee, Lee Israel is basically an analogue for McCarthy in the sense that I think we were talking about it just before we started recording that very much in spite of her stock trades, loud, sorry, stock in trades, um, loudmouth, smart ass routine that uh, I mentioned, especially in Happy Time Murders, was showing signs of running on fumes at this point. In very much the same way, McCarthy somehow manages to evoke a real measure of empathy for Lee, despite mm-hmm. the fact that she appears by her actions and manners manners to be a largely irredeemable arse ratchet uh, for most, <laughs> of the, most of the film. And likewise, Hugh Grant, as you touched on the fact, and again, a lot of people have made this um, comparison. Hugh Grant? But, oh, sorry. Richard E. Grant, sorry, he's essentially a dialed down with Neil and he's also somehow evokes sympathy despite coming across on paper as pretty much equally worthy of contempt through his actions yeah. and yeah, occasionally, occasionally inaction. And I think it's, I actually think it's really refreshing to see the recognition this has had through awards season because it's not the kind of template issue movie that normally generates that kind of pull. See, for example, the last episode we spoke about Green Book. And nor are the performances, uh, performances, sorry, overtly dramatic. Mm-hmm. It just kind of quietly plies its trade without making much of a fuss. Very subtle, yeah. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see where Heller goes next because what this does for the kind of material we see being offered to both the leads on the world weary evidence of happy time murders McCarthy could do with a shot in the arm and I think as as a Brit I suspect a, a lot of my um, my country people will feel that Richard E. Grant has always kind of been massively underappreciated no, not least of all I mean it's a bit of a joke he was never nominated for Hudson Hawk people um, <laughs> but this, this, is, this is just a really good film that just plies its craft really quietly and I liked it far more than I expected and I think also the, the one takeaway from this is quite I was quite startled as I suspect a lot of people were at the time or as I've certainly read after watching the movie a lot of people were startled to find out just just how little um, just how little research goes into provenance um, in the the world of um, the market of celebrity correspondence. Yeah I couldn't believe that watched I'm thinking is this like accurate to what happened because almost nobody questions anything the most they go to is is it real Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, that seems entirely fine then. Let's go with that. <laughs> and, and by all accounts, that, that is absolutely how that market certainly used to work. I don't know. I don't know whether it does now in the wake it's, of this scandal. But and it's, people have been making like copies of old masters and stuff since like the old masters weren't old; they were new. Yeah. So I, I don't understand how this in such a expensive business could have gone on for so long. We're not talking. Like maybe 1850s when settlers less technology to it's 1991 yes. in the richest city in the world. How? How? One one can extrapolate from that that there there certainly have to be a lot more stories like Lee's that haven't been told. But, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> because I can't imagine where there's that much money to be made that easily that other people have not played that system significantly. But then like this isn't this that long after the Hitler Diaries, is it? Mm. And they mention it in this film, and it's one of the most famous fakes of all time. Mm. 
so that even the characters in this film are aware of it, of what, what a big deal that was, and it took quite a while to get that proven to be fake, and then, like, oh, but this letter's obviously real. That'll do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the sort of thing Noel Coward would have said. How does $700 sound? <laughs> it has the ring of truthiness to it, and that's apparently all you need. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I agree entirely. Uh, I thought it was really good. I maybe even liked it more than, than both of you guys. Um, I came to it pretty much entirely cold, apart from uh, when it was mentioned the other day that it was getting some good rewards, but I was absolutely blown away by most of it. Um, one thing, I'm not sure if you'd went into a deeper character study on either of the leads, uh, or either of McCarthy or uh, Grant's character, would have actually made it a better film. I thought they did a, a tremendous job of mm. getting a lot of character across just by... The, the empty spaces and the looks and the glances yeah. I thought was a, a really great performance from yeah. both of them that, that brought a lot of character to it that said a lot of things without having it being explicit yeah, um, I, but I, I felt I really did get a really great sense of these characters and that's why I, why I enjoyed the, their performances I, I so much do, I wouldn't like you to think I didn't I don't know if, if they both seem to have the idea oh, that I didn't oh, like it back as much now, Drew. <laughs> I thought it was truly excellent just, um, because I was found the characters mm. so interesting I don't disagree with anything you said Scott mm. that mm-hmm. there's a lot of the nuance and subtlety that they have brought so much to the characters I was so interested in the characters I just wanted more that was mm. all um, so yeah and I think you said Craig that you could like sort of lay that on too thick and have too much exposition and things, and I certainly wouldn't want that. I, just, I found the characters so fascinating. I want to know a bit more about them. Yeah, um, maybe only- I shouldn't have that. Maybe because maybe it would make it worse. But no, I think it's great. It's- there's only one. There's only one character note that I remember being pretty much like on the nose throughout the entire film, and it's the point near the start at which um, Lee's agent tells her, like, you know, what your problem is that you should actually try being nice. Lee, stop! Yeah. You should just stop being an asshole. And you I think be an asshole when you're famous. Yeah, that's yeah. it. I think that's the that's the only point at which anyone makes an overt reference to sort of a, to yeah. to one of the main characters character <laughs> um, and the rest of the film it's just entirely told through action and I really appreciated that I don't think I realised how absent that kind of confidence in character tends to be generally these days how much stuff tends to be signposted and spoon fed I know we've, we, we mentioned it quite a bit but I think it takes something like this to really stand out in relief against that stuff to make you appreciate you know actually quite a quite what a job that McCarthy and um, Grant do here um, with relatively low-key performances but very 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 assured and yeah it's just it kind of surprises me that this is on the awards radar I think it definitely deserves to be I'm just kind of surprised that it is because it doesn't it doesn't stand up and shout look at me over here I've got something worthy to say um, Mm -hmm. in in the way that sort of tends to attract that attention. Apparently Richard E. Grant has been quite the revelation in the United States because Mm. apparently very few people there have seen with Dylan I really get that sorted Mm. now. Oh my god oh my god throw yourselves in the road you don't stand a chance (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, yeah no that's what I mean I think a, a lot of people over here are like oh god Someone give Richard E. Grant some good material. He's clearly worth yeah. it. And so, well, it's nice to see that in, now that he's in his 60s, they're doing that thing of throwing him a lifeline. <laughs> um, I, I'm amazing that he's never been really awards nominated for anything major in the States before. But there you go. I'm, I'm, I'd really look forward to seeing what he's going to get offered now. And, and McCarthy, but particularly Richard E. Grant. It would be nice for him to have the sort of renaissance he so clearly deserves off the back of this. And one would imagine his agent's phone has been ringing off the dial for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what they both do next. I'm hoping that, yeah, I know Richard E. Grant can act because of with Neil and I, but that's a long time ago. And it's very much the things I've seen him in since then have tended to be supporting roles at best. I'd like Logan. to get another... <laughs> hmm. 
<laughs> I'd completely forgotten he was in Logan until I looked at his IMD profile again the other day, yeah. <laughs> he's kind of wasted in Logan, actually. It's one of the few things that's not so great about that. Well, he's bad, it's, just, it's not a massively interesting character. And that sort of, that kind of role was played much more interestingly by Brian Cox in X-Men 2, so... Yeah. But yeah, him to see him get like a proper leading role, like something he could really get his teeth into, and just I, Melissa McCarthy doing more of this sort of thing because mm. clearly she's got the chops for it. And she's done some straight stuff before. Well, she's she's, she a, comes from a stage background, doesn't she? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's got she's done some shit in like Saint Vincent, which is not great, but entertaining enough. It's kind of like a comedy version of Grand Torino without the hideous racism mm. <laughs> with Bill Murray instead of Clint Eastwood, and she's got more of a straight role in that, and she's. Possible enough. This is much more interesting. Do you know what I want to see? I want to see Stephanie Germanotta and Melissa McCarthy in a Ken Loach movie. <laughs> With a megalodon. <laughs> if Ken Loach taking a particularly strange turn. <laughs> With Statham. <laughs> My God. <laughs> oh dear. The megalodon divides among the survivors. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, there you go Megalodon goes to an art show as well Unexpected pictures <laughs> Unexpected anatomical representations I think that wraps us up for the night, doesn't it? I believe so That's suit time, isn't it? Yes, so we'll be back uh, very soon with another podcast And until that time, take care of yourselves and each other I will bid you adieu, and I'm sure my good friends will do too <laughs> Indeed Still a proxima. Mm-hmm.